Good to see everybody. Um, as Chris mentioned, I think I know almost everyone in here. If not, my name is Wade. I get the joy of partnering along with Chris to shepherd and pastor our incredible Missio family. And super glad you're here. We are starting today, as Chris mentioned, a four-week series in the Psalms. We're calling the Summer in the Psalms. And if you recall, several weeks ago, we asked some of you in the Missio family on the city on our online network to just give us some, hey, give us some psalms that you want us to dig into this summer. So some of you did that, super grateful. And uh, so Chris and I looked at some of your suggestions. We took the easier ones, uh, that you th- uh, the ones that you listed. And so we're gonna, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, but we're gonna do one per week. So we're gonna do Psalm 139 today. We're gonna do Psalm 8 next week, uh, Psalm 145 and Psalm 127. So that's gonna take us through uh, July. We're excited about that. So the question is though, why the Psalms? We, we will tend to do this from, uh, you know, usually every summer, but let me ask you maybe this question. Maybe you've asked this or you know somebody else who has asked this. Like, what would it look like to, like, really live and, and have comfort in really challenging times? Maybe you've asked the question or somebody else has asked the question, like, what does it look like to really live a life without any regrets? Or what does it look like to actually have peace in a world that seems so chaotic, especially now? And so we believe that the Psalms address those questions and more. In fact, we believe really that the Psalms, all of scripture for sure, but specifically as we're digging in that the Psalms address the whole spectrum of human emotions and needs. And I don't think it is a uh, accident that if you were to take your Bible, whether you know it or not, and were to say, I'm going to flip open to like halfway uh, in my Bible, chances are you're going to hit one of the 150 Psalms in God's word, right? These 150 songs and poems that was the ancient hymnal of Israel. And I don't think it's an accident that here we see at the very center of God's word are the Psalms because when we think about it, our hearts are the very center of our emotional selves. And so the Psalms are this invitation from God to us. God wants our heart. And he's willing to take our hearts wherever it's at. Wherever you're at this morning, whether your heart is depressed, discouraged, elated, uncertain, that if we're willing to have God do his work, his word will take our hearts and will shape it and transform it for our good and for his glory. So we're gonna dig into Psalm 139, but before we do that, I wanna pray again. Lord God, we ask this morning you give us ears to hear, hearts to be transformed to receive your word. God, we know that these Psalms are so relevant for us today. And so God, we pray that we would take them in, we'd breathe them in, we'd live them out. They are for us to make us more like you and for your glory. Father God, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and redeemer. Amen. Um, You've probably heard me um, from time to time tell you how passionate I am about this uh, personality test called the Enneagram. Anybody ever heard of it? 
okay? Yeah, maybe not. Um, super helpful tool to help you figure out, like, how are you wired? Um, how do you interact with the world? How do you interact with uh, one another? So it's a personality test, and I don't have time to, like, go into all of the details, but let me just give you a quick snapshot of that. So you fall on the scale uh, between a number between one and nine, Okay, and every single person has the, one of these numbers uh, is their strongest one. And so the number that I fall into on this personality scale is the number one. Now, don't let that fool you because it does not mean that I'm the better number of the nine. In fact, uh, the gurus who have designed the Enneagram and who train and teach will tell you that if you are a one on the Enneagram, it's probably the hardest number to be in terms of changing your behavior. Okay, yay for me, right? Okay, so um, what, so there, there's, with all these numbers, there's healthy ways of living and unhealthy ways. So uh, let me give you some of the good of what makes up a one. Uh, that's kind of, I think, in, in some ways true of me. But for a one, one of the healthy things that we tend to, to see and do is that we see things that are broken and we want it to be made right. And so uh, for those of us who are ones that we hunger for justice, when we see things that are unfair, we want it to be fair. We want that, though, the oppressed to have a voice. We see injustice and we want things to be righted. Okay, uh, those of us who are ones who are healthy that we desire, and this is maybe one of the reasons why I'm a pastor and I was a teacher for years, is that we desire to pour into people. We want the best in people to come out and flourish. We want to train them. We want to equip them. We want to see the, the best that they have come out of them. We, we hunger in our best moments as a one for fairness and honesty and integrity in the things that we do. And there's many more, um, but I don't want to brag and boast about myself at all. But no, those are true. But here's the other part of every single number on Enneagram. There's always the unhealthy side as well. The side that you are living in, um, in an unhealthy way, dare I say, an, a sinful way. And so when I'm living in my unhealthy state as a one, I'm a perfectionist. And so I'm very, very quick to see what is broken, and I feel that it's my duty, dare I say, it's my right to fix it immediately. And when it doesn't get fixed, I can freak out. And so those of us who are ones and living in an unhealthy way, a lot of times, too, we will beat ourselves up when we fail. And because we're perfectionists, if I'm not as perfect as I think I should be, or I don't raise up my, myself to the bar of perfection that I think others have set for me, then I really have an internal battle going on. And when I'm at my worst, then what happens is I feel like I'm insignificant. And chances are, there might be some of you in here that kind of wrestle with those same feelings that I do. You may or may not be a one on the Enneagram, but the reality of it is, is that every single one of us is searching for significance. We wanna be valued. We wanna be loved. We wanna know that, hey, our life matters. We wanna be significant. 
And when we truly get the idea, as David tells us in this psalm, and I believe that it's so important today, when we find our significance in God, then we really find our true significance. Another way to say it is that we find our significance when we see how significant we are to God. We find our significance when we see how significant we are to God. And we're significant for so many reasons, but this is where David takes us today, and we're gonna camp out on this phrase that God knows us. God knows us. And as we go through, and hopefully you've maybe read through the psalm before today, Psalm 139, that is the whole idea, the whole theme of this psalm is that you are fully, truly known by God. God knows you. In fact, that word know or known and and the word also knowledge, which comes from that root, in this psalm is used seven times. And if you know anything about the number seven in scripture, it signifies fullness, completeness. And so David is saying in this psalm that God fully and completely knows you. You gotta get this because if you don't get this, you're gonna search for significance anywhere else in people, in power, in position, and it's gonna leave you drained and it's gonna leave you despairing and in some cases, it will lead you to destruction. But when you see that you can find significance in God alone, instead of despair, there's hope. Instead of destruction, there's new life. We find our significance when we see that we are significant to God. Well, David starts Psalm 139, and we're gonna read the very first six verses to see what he means here about God knowing us. Psalm 139, starting with verse one. Oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. That word search is to to dig, to explore, to really move away all the stuff to see clearly. Lord, you've searched me and you know me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and you are acquainted with all of my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and you lay your hand upon me. The idea here isn't that God is pressuring you and pushing you down. The idea is his hands upon you for blessing and for protection. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. I can't understand it, David is saying. God knows you fully, completely. He knows you better than anyone else knows you, better than your spouse, better than your best friend or colleagues. He knows you better than you know yourself. The invisible 
as well as the visible, the private as well as the public. God knows. Um, when I was a kid, I really used to love, well, still do, I guess, those uh, plastic ant cities. You ever seen those, right? You know what I'm talking about, right? Uh, I never had one personally, but I had some in, the class, in our classrooms. I always loved them. And what I loved about it is like normally, if you're looking at how ants are working, you just see, you know, the outside. You see the ant hill. You see the ants scurrying to and fro. But we always wanted to know what's like really going on inside, right? And that was what's so cool about those plastic ant cities is you could see them like digging into these tunnels and sand and dirt. You could see them interacting. You could see them taking the food all the way down to the queen. It was really cool, right? Is it just me? Anybody else think that's kind of cool, right? You could see the insides of what was working. And that's what David is kind of saying here that God does with our lives. He sees the inner workings, the inside of what's going on. The things that no one else sees. The things that you try to hide from other people. God sees it all. He knows you. And when we think about that, it can do one of two things, at least in my experiences. It really can bring us comfort, or maybe it kind of freaks us out a little bit. I mean, when you think about God truly, fully knowing you, do you find comfort or do you feel a little bit uneasy? Just, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Be vulnerable too. Comfort? Why so? What brings comfort to you in knowing that? Anybody else feel like Doug? Anybody else feel like, uh, having God know everything about me is kind of, I don't know, it's kind of freaky. How about both? Okay, explain. There we go. There's some, now we're getting real, right? Okay, what do you mean by that, Cindy? That's good. Yeah, wild, huh? That's wild. Yeah, when you think about it, it's like it's, it's scary. It's scary if your idea of God is one who's wrathful and punishing. It kind of scares us, right? I can see that, right? And it's the idea of God, if you know me as a big sinner, what are you gonna do with that? What are you gonna do with that? Hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, hmm. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. 
Yeah. That's great. It's like almost like you've read this psalm before. You know where David's gonna go. Hold on to that because it's so true and what you're saying is so real. And I think even David expresses that emotion here because for David, I really do believe that there was some of that as well. The, the Man, this is amazing, God, you know me, but there's something like that that kind of makes me a little timid and scared and fearful. Look what he, looks what he writes in verse seven. I think we kind of see this. He says, where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? It's this idea that David himself is like, uh, maybe there's this tendency that I do want to flee from God, you really searching and knowing everything about me. Maybe I'm afraid. Maybe I'm ashamed. Where can I go? If I ascend to the heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, which is the depths, the place of the dead, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning, the rays of the sun there, and I dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me. Your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day. For darkness is as light with you. God knows us. And there's nowhere you can hide from him. And here's something even better than that. You are not hidden from him. God knows you and God sees you. You are valuable. And because God knows us so well, to fully and truly know us, he has to be present with us at all times to get that. And for some of us in here right now, you might be in a situation where you're like, God, I don't feel like you're present at all. I feel like you are completely distant. Where are you? Are you here? I, I, I know your word says that, but man, I, I, God, I don't feel it. If you're real, you either walk in that now, you have been, or you might be someday. But God in his word is saying, I'm here. And I know you. And to know that we are known by God means that we are significant. We are significant. This psalm really hit home to me several years ago, and I think I've shared this maybe in the past, but um, when I was younger, I was swimming in the Pacific Ocean, and I almost drowned. And I'm not the best swimmer in the world, so compound that with being caught in an undertow. Um, if you've ever been or experienced that, you know how you know, frightening that really is. And so I find myself in an undertow being pulled out to sea away from the shore. Um, and there's just this overwhelming fear. And the waves are just crashing over me. It's like this idea of David saying in the uttermost part of the sea. And all I can remember in, the, uh, in between the gulps of air and water struggling to get into my lungs was just this pleading, God, Rescue, God help me, God, God. And I remember 
in that moment thinking my life is over, feeling, and I can't even explain it, but feeling this uh, sense of somebody grabbing me very strongly and lifting me on top of this wave as if I was on a boogie board and gliding me all the way to shore, out of the undertow. And to this day, I can't explain it other than the fact that I believe wholeheartedly this was God's hand upon me. And a couple days after this event, I actually came upon this psalm. And I don't know why, I don't remember the circumstances about it, but I came to Psalm 139, and as I read this psalm, I lost it, especially this passage here, where David is saying, even if I dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, which I found myself in, not by choice, even there, your hand shall lead me. Your right hand shall hold me. And I definitely felt that. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me. And the idea of darkness here, especially what we see in the Old Testament, the idea of darkness is chaos. In that moment of my own chaos, thinking it was going to cover me, no, to God it was light. And he brought me to the shore. God was present with me. Are you living in a situation right now where you just feel there's darkness, there's chaos all around you? Are you struggling to believe that God knows you and because God knows you, he's present with you? And I want to encourage you today, family, I wanna encourage you, take this psalm and make it yours. Take it this week, read it day by day to remind yourself that God knows you and he sees you and he is present with you. Even when you feel like he is distant and there's darkness, that is a lie that the enemy wants you to believe but God knows you. And you find your significance when you know how significant you are to God because he's present with you. Well, God knows us, and that makes sense because he's created us beautifully, wonderfully. David continues in verse 13, for you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. The Hebrew here literally is, I am awesomely wonderful. Don't let that go to your head. It's not because of anything you've done. That's because the awesome creator has made you that way in his image, a God reflector. Wonderful are your works, my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. It's the idea of the very womb itself within the mother. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me when as yet there was none of them. 
wrap your mind around that. Every single day of your existence has been known and is known by God. Not one day of your life is a mistake. Not one of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I were to count them, they are more than the sand. I awake. I'm still with you. God knows you. God created you awesomely wonderful. And here's the idea. And I just want to rest with this. You are loved. You are loved. You matter. God does not make junk. And therefore, life matters for you and for others. And no matter what you've been told by the world, whether your significance is only found in how you perform or what other people think of you, the fact that God has created you means that you are loved and you are valuable and that you are significant, not because of what you've done or will do, but because God has made you awesomely wonderful. God knows you. And when we get that, we see how significant we are to God. God knows us. And it'd be great if we could just continue and move on to verse 23. Uh, we get, though, to verse 19 through 22 here and uh, takes a different turn. And if you've read this, you know exactly what I'm talking about. It makes us kind of feel a little uncomfortable. I mean, up to this point, of these first 18 verses, we're talking about God knowing us, uh, God understanding who we are, creating us, shaping us. And then we get to this point where it seems like David, where is he? He's kind of just lost it. Um, this is a, a section of this psalm that is rarely read in liturgy. You, you know this morning when we did this liturgy in the call to worship and even in our confession, uh, we didn't talk about God slaying the wicked, okay? <laughs> so it makes us uncomfortable. Let's just admit that. But there is purpose for why David wrote this. We need to know this. Let's just read it. David says, verse 19, Oh, that you would slay the wicked, oh God. And it is emphatic. You, God. Oh, men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you? Oh, Lord. And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. That's our sending benediction. Have a great week. I think we look at that and we go, uh, David has had some sort of personality split here in this moment, right? I don't think so. I don't think so. 
So the idea here is some commentators believe that the context for this psalm is that David king over Israel has been uh, misaligned and has been accused of idolatry because he only serves one God and not many gods of the other nations. People are out to get him. People are out to kill him. And in the first 18 verses, David is writing this poem, this song about how great God is, that he knows him intimately, has crafted him, has displayed his holiness, and he's reminded of how many people are wicked and could care less about the ways of God. And the reality of it is, as I sat in this this week, is like, if you wrap your mind around how good God is and all that God has done, ultimately, you're going to get to the point where you hate all that is against him. And the idea here of hate kind of, kind of gets into our hearts because it's not a word that, well, wait a minute, didn't Jesus say that we should love our enemies, not hate our enemies? And the idea here of hate, especially in the Hebrew, is more not spite, but zeal for the holiness of God. The hatred is a rejection of all that is against God and his ways. And so David is saying, God, you are so holy you are so good, you know me, we are significant in your eyes, you shape us, you mold us, you are present with us, and everyone that rejects you, I reject. I wanna walk in your ways. I wanna follow you. I think that's really the heart of where David was going. But then it's, as if he's wrote this psalm, this poem, and he gets to that point, and then he realized, well, wait a minute. I better make sure that my own heart doesn't reflect that same wickedness. That my heart does not reject God like those around me. Which then prompts him to write verse 23 and 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. So he started the psalm this way. He said, God, you have already searched me. You've already dug all that junk out of my heart. Keep doing it. Keep doing it. Keep searching me. Keep knowing me fully. Test me. Try me. Know my thoughts. See if there's any grievous way in me, any sort of guilt in me, any sort of sin in me, see if it's there, get rid of it, search it out, forgive, and lead me in the way everlasting. Even in the zeal that David has for God in those previous verses, doesn't negate the fact that David still needs God to search and to clear out the junk. Here in this moment is David's posture of repentance and faith, of both confession as well as assurance of who he is in God, that he is significant and known and loved. And if we are to make this psalm ours, which I believe we are called to do, and this is why God has given us this psalm, if this is to be our psalm that we breathe in and live out, then we, along with David, say, God, search me. 
clear out every bit of junk and filth and wickedness in my heart that rejects you. Get rid of it. I don't want to live like that. I want to be led by you in the way everlasting. And to be led in the way everlasting means to be led by Jesus, who himself claims to be the way, the truth, and the life. Because although you may think that this psalm is really about David, it's not. It's really about Christ. The one who came as God in the flesh, who was fully known and fully loved by the Father. The one who fully knows us and fully loves us and leads us in the way everlasting. Jesus says in John 10, verses 14 and 15, he says, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. We find our significance when we see how significant we are to Christ. That he fully knows you. He fully loves you. And if, you, if that's not enough for you to find your significance, he has laid down his life for you. John says in 1 John 3, 16, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. See, David in his psalm, writing many, many years before Jesus shows up on the scene, was actually pointing towards Christ and didn't even know it, most likely. His longing that God would get rid of the wicked. And Jesus came and he fulfilled that. But instead of slaying the wicked with the sword, instead of slaying the wicked with hatred and violence, Jesus came instead with a cross and with love and with forgiveness. And as Christ hung on the cross, he said, Father, don't slay the wicked. Forgive them. To know your significance is to know that Jesus loves you so much that he gave his life for you. So now, his blood that has washed away our sin gives us true significance, true worth, true identity. You don't have to wrestle and try to find significance in anything else other than Christ. He knows us fully. He loves us fully. So much so that he said, if you would confess with your mouth that I am Lord and believe in your heart that God raised me from the dead, you will be saved. God knows you, family. He loves you. He sees you. He's present with you. So much so that he sent his own son to be the very presence of God in our midst. And now, 
as we await the return of Jesus, God's very presence dwelling in us, the Spirit of God, reminding us over and over and over that we are significant to God. I'm praying this for you, that you would not only hear this this morning, but believe it. And so as we go, I want you to do this for me this week. This is your homework. I want you to take this psalm and I want you to make it your own this week. How do you do that? I want you to read it, perhaps even memorize it, take it to heart, and remind yourself this week over and over and over again, who is God? What has he done in and through Jesus? What does that make you? And how do you get to live your life now? This is super important because if you're not reminding yourself of who you are in Jesus, the world's gonna try to remind you of what false significance looks like. And so you need to remind yourself over and over again that you are significant because of Christ. And instead of despair and destruction and discouragement, you will find hope and healing and transformation. We find our significance when we see how significant we are to God. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would take the words of this psalm and just get it into our hearts and our minds. Transform us. God, we delight in knowing that we are significant, not because of anything we've done or how others view us or even how we even view ourselves but we are significant because you have shaped and formed us to be your people. God, the last part of that verse or in John 10 there, Jesus tells us that I know my sheep and my sheep know me. God, I pray that as you know us, we seek to know you. Communing with you, reading your word, praying with you getting in a community of men and women who can remind me that I belong to you, that I am significant in your eyes. As you know us, may we by your strength and power seek to know you, God. I pray that for Missio. Thank you, Father, that you loved us so much. You sent your son to lay down his life for us that we may have hope and new life. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.